History Factory podcast. On this show, we get behind the scenes of the Harvard Business Review with its editor, Amy Bernstein. The Harvard Business Review, a mainstay of business media. You may be a subscriber, you may be an avid reader and follower, or perhaps you're a subscriber or non-subscriber that occasionally reads an article that catches your attention, shows up in your feed, or someone sends you. But however you engage with HBR, if it's part of your content ecosystem, if you're like me, it's just kind of an omnipresent fixture or media institution. And I'll be honest, I'm not one of those that devours HBR end to end when a new uh, issue of the bi-monthly magazine comes out. But I really enjoy HBR, and I read at least a few articles every week on the app. But certainly, I value Harvard Business Review, and it's one of a few business media resources that I've happily subscribed to for years. And Harvard Business Review just reached 100 years, uh, technically last year, and some of their content around this milestone caught my attention because when you're in my line of work, these kinds of things catch your attention. And I noticed they were having a centennial gala in New York this spring, and I decided to attend. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lovely event, as you might expect, that really exceeded my expectations in terms of the balance of substance with a really elegant celebration. And it was interesting to learn a little bit more about the organization itself. The program had really interesting leaders and thinkers and um, performers. Viola Davis was part of the program. For me, one of the takeaways was that HBR offers more than I realized as part of its platform, including it puts on events pretty regularly, and I'd very much like to attend one in the future. So the event also included this fun experience where at the end of the evening, they had set up a reception area as a bookstore with many of the landmark books from Harvard Publishing. And one of them was HBR at 100, the most influential and innovative articles from Harvard Business Review's first century. It's impressive. It's 400 plus pages of incredible articles. It's available, by the way, in, in the store on HBR's site and elsewhere, although I suspect Amy would want you to purchase it from HBR, so I'll leave it at that. But it was an impressively executed centennial program with various content the HBR team produced, as well as this great event in New York. And as I read some of the articles in this awesome book, I thought about the process that must have gone into creating this and just the amount of content that HBR produces on a regular basis. And I thought, I'd like to learn more about that. So I was delighted to have the opportunity to talk more with Amy Bernstein, the editor of Harvard Business Review, where she oversees the magazine and its team of editors. She's also the vice president and executive editorial director for Harvard Business Publishing, responsible for the editorial strategy and content development of the learning and educator assets for its corporate learning and higher education businesses. And without further ado, here's my conversation about Harvard Business Review with Amy Bernstein. Amy, thanks so much for joining us and happy 100 to Harvard Business Review. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, well, first, uh, I really enjoyed uh, attending uh, the the gala and centennial event that you all had in New York. Um, I think, as I said recently, it was a perfect kind of blend of 
of um, celebration and, and substance. Um, it was just a really enjoyable event. Um, but before we, we we talk more about kind of where you are today and where you're going, what do you know of the origin story of Harvard Business Review? I was actually surprised to discover that it's as old as it is. I always kind of envisioned it as sort of a, you know, I just kind of expected it was a, a post-World War II publication. So I was surprised when I initially saw that um, it's been around as long as it's been. But what do you know of how uh, HBR came to be? Well, uh, you know, I, I got to write an essay um, for uh, on the occasion of our 100th anniversary. So I, I learned a lot and and it some of it did surprise me. Um, but what I know is that when it launched in October of 1922, not long after the founding of Harvard Business School, so that's not a coincidence, um, the very first essay by the then dean of Harvard Business School, Wallace Donham, um, sort of laid out the mission. And he said that the mission was to obtain a proper theory of business. And unless business obtained this proper theory, it would continue, and I'm quoting, unsystematic, haphazard, and for many men, note men, a pathetic gamble. So it's it started as a mis- mission-driven publication, um, the product of Harvard Business School, and, and much of that remains the case today. What and when it started, I mean, well, first of all, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a it, it was a quarterly, right? It, it was a quarterly, yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, it was aimed at what we, the people we call practitioners, so business leaders. Um, but it was published by a university. It was kind of a unique, it was a unique idea. I, I was once talking to a professor at another business school, not Harvard Business School, who kind of shook his head and said, that was the most brilliant idea Harvard Business School ever had, was to put this out there. Um, and, you know, it it has continued to evolve for a hundred years um, and has kind of expanded its scope and its concept of who it, we serve. Um, And I think that our success is kind of a testament to the need for this continuing thirst to understand how the world works. Yeah. And what and how has that evolved? I mean, do you, do you have any familiarity with sort of the editorial focus of the first, you know, decade or two in terms of Oh how yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first the first few years were all about the kind of the the dry op- well, I shouldn't say dry because they're they're passionately interested to people who are passionately interested, but um to the operations of business. Um you know, it was it was accounting and supply chains and 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 the stuff that really is the nuts and bolts the blocking and tackling of making business work of creating and capturing value and delivering value um so the subject matter started there you know the the kind of there wasn't much in the way of management thinking of course there was frederick winslow taylor the the father of scientific management, the motion expert, the yeah. guy with the stopwatch who who said, yeah, you can 
you know, you can pack those boxes faster if you if you eliminate this particular action. Um, and then the other thing that's changed a lot is the sort of the generally accepted idea of who a business leader is. Uh, so back in October of 1922, a business leader was likely a a white man probably American, right? And today we think of our readers and our audience as people at every stage of their career, every gender, every race, and in every part of the world. You know, most of the visitors to hbr.org, our website, come from outside the United States, which is a really important thing for us to keep in mind as we think about the content we post there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And when did, when did that kind of shift to a more international audience take place? Has that been over more of the last sort of 25 to 30 years, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a, um, we have about, I don't know, nine, 10 publishing partners who are, were originally our magazine publishing partners across the globe. So in all the major markets of Europe and Asia, non-English speaking. Um, and then as we launched HBR.org and as the sort of the, the center of gravity of our operations moved more and more toward digital, of course, our audience became more and more global. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Amy, because that was a question I had, you know, when when folks think of of Harvard Business Review they think of substantive long form content and and one of the things i've noticed you know just as as a reader is that there's been this more of a shift not away from that but really complementing those longer kind of forms of content with um shorter forms of content more visual um you're obviously uh, have a lot more sort of, I guess we'll say content products in terms of yeah. video and webinars and all these things that you're doing, um, like like all organizations, you know, working across multiple sort of platforms and formats. And I'm curious, what's that process been like for the organization? Has there, have there been key challenges and what have been some of the successes and lessons learned um, as as the, the the magazine has made that that shift? Well, first of all, we no longer think of our the HBR as the magazine. Right. The magazine is as soon as I said it, I was like, ah. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's 2023. So the magazine is but one expression of HBR. Our website, hbr.org, is um the probably our most important showcase for the ideas that we develop and put out in the world in many different forms. As you said, um, one idea can take any number of forms and usually the really good ones do. So maybe there are 5,000 word article, maybe there are 50,000 word book. We also have a, a pretty lively um, book publishing operation, the HBR Press. Yeah. Um, but they can be shorter articles. You can bite off pieces of an idea and explore them in 800 words, videos, TikTok, webinars, podcasts, newsletters, live events, as, as you yourself experienced. There are any number of ways 
for us to bring the best ideas in business and management to the people we serve. Yeah. And, and as I asked, has there been, have you, have you found any sort of unique challenges as part of that transition? You know, I think when I joined the company, you know, 11 and a half years ago, it was a, I would say the the shift from HBR as a magazine to HBR is a multi-platform offering. Wasn't always easy. And it took, you know, it took a lot of, um, you know, for some people took a lot of getting used, used to, we had to hire people with, to us, new skills, uh, and new kinds of expertise. And I believe now we have hit a point where we're all sort of, we are, we are really a one big team. There's no us and them ism. Um, and there's no sense that a 5,000 word article is somehow more important than a video. They're just different. And we're much more concerned with the quality of the work we develop and its impact on the people we serve. Yeah. And back to kind of the, the, the question around sort of the evolution of content and editorial, um, you know, and, and based on some of the reading I did, you know, and as you noted, the um, sort of early kind of editorial focus of, of, of HBR was, you know, very, what we'll call operational. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and, and obviously, you know, as you'd expect, right. It's, it, it, it really is a great sort of microcosm of just the evolution of business over the last hundred years. And, um, you know, as the whole sort of concept of business has broadened and diversified, as you noted, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. one of the one of the interesting sort of themes in business, I think, that's probably been going on for half a century now has been this sort of distinction of the quote unquote soft versus hard stuff, right? Yeah. And, and the importance of culture and and you know, th- this has been a, an ongoing theme. Um, but when we were at the event, you know, one of the things that came up obviously was the the shift in purpose that um that the uh, business roundtable made in 2019. Right. And I'm curious how has how has this kind of shift in society and business how has that changed maybe the editorial focus of, of HBR? Well, it's challenged us to address the urgent needs of our audience. And so we, you know, we can't sit in an ivory tower and edit from our inbox. We have to be alive to the kinds of struggles that our readers and our audience uh, are dealing with every single day. So the last few years was a perfect example of this. We have a pandemic. We have a racial reckoning. We have increasing nativism, you know, and which makes supply chains harder to manage. We have a war, you know, we have a war in Europe. So we have a, 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 a you know, the recession, which is always like a month away. There's, there's this looming recession. Um, so we're, we're very attuned to the, 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 the nature of uh, organizational leadership and management today, which really feels a little bit like jumping crisis to crisis. And the other thing that has happened is that the way we, the, the way organizations deliver value has changed dramatically. 
So, you know, we've gone from an industrial world to knowledge. And, you know, obviously I'm using very broad strokes. And we've gone from org structures that were once very hierarchical and almost mechanistic to much more networked structures where your teammate may not even be employed by your company and where you have to lead even when you don't have formal authority and where influence counts a lot and where, you know, you really don't as a leader say, because I said so. You're trying to inspire and motivate rather than to rule by diktat. And so that is the world in which our audience is operating. And we are trying to equip them to understand how it works and to do what they do better. Yeah. And you mentioned this earlier, but I just want to kind of circle back to it. It's it's easy to sort of take success for granted. And, and Harvard Business Review has been such a sort of cornerstone of, um, you know, business thought leadership. Um, but what do you think has been the staying power? I mean, it's not easy to stay relevant for a hundred years. Uh, what, how, how do you, and, and I think to your point, it could, one could easily imagine a, a academic uh, publication uh, functioning from that ivory tower and becoming uh, irrelevant. You know, what have been sort of the keys to the longevity and success and ability of the organization to, to adapt? Such a good question. I, well, I think part of it is that, you know, when I was, before I came to work at Harvard Business Review, I had this idea of HBR as kind of um, a bastion of arrogance. You know, it was a bunch of guys sitting around smoking pipes and telling the world how it should operate. Couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we do practice what we preach. We, we The ideas that we identify as really, really important and that we develop and publish are ideas that we follow. And there's an essential humility about most of the people who are calling the shots in this organization. Um, We know we don't know everything. We know we are serving others. We know who we are serving, and we know that their worlds are very, very challenging. And so there's a lot of care that goes into it. Um, Mm. We don't get it right all the time, and we own when we don't get it right. Uh, But there is a, a... there is a core of integrity here and we measure our success in, in, in many ways. You know, we look at newsstand, we look at subscription numbers, we look at how many people visit our websites and download our articles. We look at impact. We look at how the ideas enter, enter the thought stream, if you will, of Mm -hmm. leadership and how they are having impact on the people who we are trying to serve. So I would say that, you know, our agenda is pretty pure. Mm, yeah. And what do, you, what do you think is one of the most sort of misunderstood perceptions of, of, of Harvard Business Review? Is that is it that it's a bunch of dudes with pipes? Well, that was my misperception. I think <laughs> in the in the last or that it's a, or that it's a magazine. <laughs> oh, well, that's certainly another one. Um, you know, I think that we have done a really good job of of reaching people where they are, as I say, 
you know, we're, we've got our people know HBR.org. They know our newsletters. They know our management tip of the day. You know, sometimes it arrives in their inbox. Sometimes it talks to them out of their Alexa. Um, we have been very, very innovative and we have a high tolerance for failure in our innovation because we also have a process for learning from it. So I think, I don't know. I think maybe one idea is that it's for people sitting in the C-suite. Do people still think that? Certainly, certainly we're trying to speak to those folks and to help them. Um, But just as much HBR is trying to help um, people in their first jobs, people trying to make that all-important leap from individual contributor to manager. These are very, very difficult transitions to make, and we want to help our readers, our audience through those transitions so that they can soar. Um, also, that we're you know we're really focused on the forty thousand the forty thousand foot view and the hard stuff. Um, we're very focused as well. Yeah, sure. Strategy, operations, innovation, absolutely our wheelhouse. But equally, matters of, um, we've, we've written a lot about, we've published a lot about mental health. Mm. We've published a lot about how you deal with the stress of, you know, being a career person today. Mm. Um, we have created product lines that serve specific portions of our of our audience. So we have um, women at work for, you guessed it, women. Uh, we have Ascend for early career professionals. Um, we're just always trying to figure out what needs we're not meeting and find a way to meet them. Yeah. And I think that was that was really reflected in in the event. Uh Right. I mean, one of the things that I was a bit sort of surprised by was the diversity of thought that was reflected just in a short kind of program over the course of a few hours on a lovely, you know, afternoon in New York. Um, but also to your point, um like the the theme how the theme of love, ironically, kind of came yeah. that day. Yeah. You know, starting obviously with you know, Marcus Buckingham's was the sort of first speaker and um he managed to run through his entire book Love and Work in like 15 yeah. minutes. <laughs> um but it, it was interesting when from from you know Marcus to Viola Davis to you know the even this the 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 speakers in the evening who were then sort of recognizing their mentors who were being honored as some of the yeah. great kind of contributors. It was interesting how that theme of love was like sort of just integrated through the day itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we commented on that ourselves. Uh, and we, I guess we were all a little surprised by that. Yeah, I was. I was for sure. So um, one or two last questions for you, but I had to ask, there's so much content and you all put together this lovely book, HBR at 100, in which you yeah. did like 30 of your most sort of influential articles. Um, uh, any war stories of how that process, how, how easy was that to do? Oh my God. <laughs> we have a hundred years worth of articles. So imagine trying to pick just a few really, really hard. And we were, you know, I, I was, I was really peripheral to it. 
um, that's a publication of the HBR Press, and right. and the editors who put that together really, really killed themselves doing that. We we were trying to figure out how we do the best job um, representing HBR and also serving the readers who are going to buy this book, and and you know we hope kind of sit with it and and read it not front to back. But pick an article at a time and 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 peruse and absorb. Um, you'll notice Adi Adi Ignatius, the editor in chief, my boss. He noticed, you know, in his in his intro to the book that we have a recency bias. Yeah, um, it's not because all the good ideas or most of the good ideas came in the last couple of decades. Far from it. But the ones that are really pertinent tend to be, you know, a little bit more recent because they're contextualized to a world we can relate to. And because they, and as part of that, you know, as the world has become more complicated, as trade has become more global, as supply chains have become more global, as social issues have risen to the fore, as the duty of the organization, of the corporation as our concept of that has evolved from, you know, serving this, the shareholder to serving the stakeholder and what that means. And no one's, you know, there are no two people who agree on what that means. Right. That we wanted, we, you know, we still measure our success in terms of impact. And that's what yeah. we wanted with this collection. Yeah. Yeah, and I was curious what the criteria might have been for for how that process could could take place because I can appreciate how challenging that was. One of the first things, of course, from you know, given the work we do, that I was really interested in was what was that sort of mix going to be in terms of content from the last twenty five? Oh my gosh, for seventy five. So you know, we knew which articles were the real landmarks. You, you know, it's it's Peter Drucker's managing oneself, the the father of of management, as he's known. Um, Mike Porter's 1979 article, the, the how competitive forces shape strategy. That's where he introduced the five forces to the practitioner readership. Um, Clay Christensen's Disruptive Technologies Catching the Wave, where he introduced his signature concept, which was disruptive innovation, as most of your listeners will know. And that, you know, all the way up to the Chan Kim and Renee Mobornia article on Blue Ocean Strategy. These are these are concepts that are taught and cited and that leaders and managers use by name. It shapes it shapes business and organizational thinking today. So when and those those ideas, you know, they were in. We didn't have there to was debate the about them. Yeah, right. The, the, so, but what's what's you know what what statues are around the four guys on Mount Rushmore, right? Yeah, so right. those that that's what there was a little bit of debate about. Do we want this one? Are we representing that idea? So there was a lot of debate. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Well, it's been, it was a blast. And um, I, I feel like I'm just like geeking out about how much I enjoyed the event. But it was like at the, after the event, it's like, you know, you walk back out into the the lobby of the like, the, um, and uh, the Lincoln Center. And then there's like, you guys had like set up like this like pop up bookstore. And I, I was like a kid in a candy store. So it was, it was just, it was a load of fun and just congratulations on it. 
Oh, what, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. What other initiatives might our, our listeners be be curious to know about? I mean, like, for instance, as someone who reads HBR pretty regularly, both online and in other formats, I didn't realize that you all do events, quite frankly. So um, what other, any new initiatives that you would want people to know about? Um, well, we're talking about our next events and our event strategy. I mean, that one was such a success. We do virtual events. Uh, and we have one planned. I'm not exactly sure when, but I know that I, I think it it's in a couple of months, but stay tuned. Follow us on on social. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, um, all the socials because we we put it out there. Uh, the the virtual events are are really well done, and of course, super easy. You can do it from your living room. Uh, you can attend from your living room. And then we're always experimenting with other kinds of of um, formats online in particular, but we'll do more live. That's awesome. Cool. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations again and happy 100 to, to Harvard Business Review. And, and thanks so much for everything you and your team are, are, are doing for us practitioners. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. You know, it's one of my favorite topics. Thank you. Thank you again to Amy Bernstein, the editor of the Harvard Business Review. Pretty cool, right? Uh, Big job she has over there. That's going to wrap up this episode of the History Factory podcast, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well.